The biggest gap in architectural education is business, yeah. <laughs> generally. Um, we're not taught business in architecture school, right? We have professional practice classes, and, and the majority of those professional practice classes are not about business, although that's changing. I think there's a trend that many professional practice classes are shifting more towards business. But there was none when I went to school, right? There was no mention at all. In fact, there was a, almost a, a discouragement from looking at it as a business when I went to school. And I think that's changing as well. I think the generation that's coming up through school now is uh, innately entrepreneurial. I think that they understand business because of the internet and the communication tools we have today. But there, there was a very big gap there. And I think that's the biggest challenge we have as architects is that we don't come out of school understanding that to start a practice is to start a small business. Welcome everyone to Best Practice. This is a show where we'll be interviewing leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today in our inaugural show, I couldn't be more excited to be interviewing uh, Mark LePage. He is the co-founder of Five Cat Studio, an award-winning architecture practice. He's also the host of the Entre Architect podcast, and he also happens from that also runs a big community on Facebook. And he also happens to be the co-founder of Gable Media, uh, which is poised to be the media company of the architecture industry and maybe beyond. Thank you, Mark, for joining me. You're very welcome, George. I appreciate you inviting me, and I'm honored to be uh, the first one on the show. Yeah, yeah, this, this will be fun. So I think it would be really good to start in basically the middle of the story, right? Starting with Andre Architect. Sure. I'm very curious of how that started uh, what inspired you to start it? And for those that don't know, uh, maybe describe what it is. Sure. Entree Architect is an online platform to help small firm architects build better businesses. That's the essential mission of it. It grew out of a passion of mine. My wife, Anne-Marie McCarthy, is also an architect. And we started our own architecture firm in 1999, doing residential additions and alterations in Westchester County, New York, about 40 minutes north of New York City. And uh, she and I make the perfect architect. Uh, she is the, the typical design-focused, loves design, loves architecture architect. And I love architecture too, and I love design too, but I have a passion for business. I love the, the game of business. I love sort of trying to learn the rules and then executing those rules and seeing uh, a result from executing those rules in a skillful way. I also like the one-on-one -on -one client contact work. And so Anne-Marie did all the great design and I did all of the client work and, and business development. And so because of that passion and interest in business, in 2006, I launched a blog for my business, for Five Cat Studio, the architecture firm. And it was specifically designed to connect with potential clients. And it worked brilliantly. It really worked really well. Uh, there were not many blogs from architects at the time, almost none, maybe none at the time, specifically in our region. And we were also very early with websites. And so when, our, when potential homeowners searched for architects in Westchester, they found us and they found the blog. And so I recognized that that worked very well. And in 2007, I started a blog, a separate blog called Entrepreneur Architect. And it was intended just to sort of be my own place, just to sort of write ideas, a place to archive uh, links that I would find or 
ideas that I had and I just sort of build them out there. And I never really had intended it to be a place where other architects would find community or find resources. It was for me. And it very quickly found an audience. And because there was no other information on the internet for architects, specifically for business. And so inside the comments of that blog formed a community. And that community is the same community that is the entrepreneur architect community today. It's just much, much, much bigger today. That early community was the inspiration for the platform. Throughout the years of blogging and hearing comments and communicating with friends through the comments, that community, many of the people who are still part of that community, encouraged me to make it bigger. And in 2012, actually, mid-2012, I announced on the blog that I was going to launch something called the 12-12-12 project on December 12th, 2012. And my, my challenge to all the readers was pick something that, was go- that will be life-altering for yourself and would make the world a better place. That was my challenge to them. And, and I said I was going to do that on December 12th, 2012, and I would announce it on the blog on that date. And when I announced it, it was EntreeArchitect.com launched the platform, and I launched the podcast the same day on 12 o'clock, 12 minutes after 12 o'clock on December 12, 2012. And that was the beginning of it. That was the, the inspiration. The community inspired it. From day one, Entree Architect has been something that uh, I imagined and visioned to be way bigger than me. And so it's been that mission from the beginning to grow beyond me and to have a significant impact on the profession through small firm architects. I believe that if the individual small firm architect can build a better business and be more financially successful as a business, the entire profession benefits from that. 80% of architects are small firm architects. And if we build strong businesses, we all individually thrive, but then the profession thrives as well. And my mission is to make the world a better place and architects make the world a better place. And the more successful they are, the more impact they'll have on the world. And so that's Entree Architect and, and sort of the, the quick story about how it came about. Wow. How many people are part of the community right now? It's hard to sort of put a number exactly on how many are in the entire community. I'd say there's probably close to 50,000 architects mm. throughout everything that we're doing, social media and membership and the Facebook group. That's podcast listeners and everything is sort of rolled into that number. The Facebook community on Facebook, the Entree Architect community, which is probably the most active piece of what we do, uh, there's a, a private Facebook group called the Entree Architect community. That has about 6,500 members on it, uh, and that's a private group. And so there are only architects and architecture students uh, in that. You have to be a trained architect to be part of that community. And that's one of the reasons why it's so successful and so vibrant is because it is a, a private architects only forum where we can be open and, and honest and transparent with one another. And so if 80% of the industry is small, medium-sized businesses, what are the challenges that they, do they all share similar challenges? Um, what, where have you identified are the biggest gaps in their education in general, where you fit in or to, to provide <laughs> yeah. that? Well, the right? biggest gap in architectural education is business, yeah. <laughs> generally. We're not taught business in architecture school, right? We have professional practice classes, and, and the majority of those professional practice classes are not about business, although that's changing. I think there's a trend that many professional practice classes are shifting more towards business, but there was none when I went to school, right? There was no mention at all. In fact, there was a, almost a, a discouragement 
from looking at it as a business when mm. when when I went to school. Uh, and I think that's changing as well. I think the the generation that's coming up through school now is uh, innately entrepreneurial. I think that they understand business because of the internet and the communication tools we have today. But there there was a very big uh, gap there, and I think that's the biggest challenge we have as architects is that we don't come out of school understanding that to start a practice is to start a small business. And uh, many of us don't look at it that way, and that's one of the the challenges we have at Entree Architect is to sort of not only inspire architects to look at their firms as small businesses, but to embrace that, to be an entrepreneur architect and embrace the fact that you are an entrepreneur and learn what you need to learn in order to be successful. Because if you, if you build a successful business, you can do a lot more of the things that you became an architect to be. You can, you can, be, you can spend more time on design. You can spend more time on on uh, uh, solving problems, you can spend more time building out a great relationship with your client and your customers. It all starts with having the funds to do that. And is there a specific, are there specific topics that you find you, the majority of that, of the community has uh, maybe less knowledge about or? Yeah, I, I would say probably the, the biggest weakness is financial management and understanding financial management. And I think that's for two reasons. One, we're not taught that. We don't really, I mean, you have to have to self-educate yourself, you know, educate yourself on that. And we don't typically like that part of the business as architects, right? It's just our, most architects have the personality that that's not, we didn't become architects to deal with numbers and and financial statements and those kind of things. So there's not much of an interest in it, which is one of the reasons why we try with Entree Architect to create products and services that help them, not only help them learn those kind of things, but do it in a way that can be fun and, and helps them do more of the things that they love to do. Yeah, it seems like definitely, I mean, so I went to architecture school for my master's. I did landscape architecture for my bachelor's. And there's definitely a, academia definitely creates a culture that is really heavy on design and assumes that a lot of the business stuff will sort of get figured right. out. Right? And because it's a, a lot of it's feeding into the industry, into the larger firms. And um, yet, a lot of the people that are teaching are sole practitioners or they have their own small, uh, maybe five-person firms. And so you end up looking towards them a lot of times as like an example. So what's interesting is like in academia, there's, there's still the idea of becoming an entrepreneur as, as much as it is a feeder for these larger companies. But at some point, it just, you know, if they decide to become an entrepreneur after a couple of years of working at a Gensler or a shop, they still might carry too much of that kind of like design sensibility as a, as a piece of it. So I'm curious, does someone have to just go out of a loan, right? Is it just starting a business, you know, could you backfill with some other people and some other team members that could have more expertise on that? And what have you seen when it comes to maybe more yeah. partnerships that are formed? Yeah, you, you certainly can do that. I think just to sort of backtrack a little bit on the question Part of the issue that we have in architecture is that architecture schools don't feel that it is their responsibility to teach us business. And that's arguable, right? That maybe, maybe not. So they don't. They feel that it's the intent, the, the idea, the structure of the education of an architect is that you leave architecture school understanding how to design and think architecturally. And it is the responsibility of the profession to teach architects the rest of what you need to know to be a successful architect during that intern process. 
which doesn't really happen, right? We don't see firms, especially large firms, opening up the business side of what they do and being transparent with what they do. They don't teach the young architects, the emerging professionals, how to run the business side. That's typically, right? I can't say all firms don't do that, but many of the firms don't do that. And traditionally, we certainly didn't do that traditionally. And so architects would come out of that internship with all the requirements that they need and become licensed architects and still don't know how to run a business. And so that's the gap that we're trying to fill, is trying to be that next step that you just come into our community and we'll teach you what you need to know. And to answer your question, George, I think you can do that. I think if you are someone that doesn't have that strength and you want to start your own firm, you certainly can find a partner who has that strength and you should find a partner who has that strength. You know, whether you like the business side or you don't like the business side, you should find somebody who is a compliment to you, right? And somebody who fills in the gaps that you have and you fill the gaps that they have, which is a perfect example. My wife and I are that example, that she is the design who doesn't want anything to do with the business side of it. She doesn't like it at all. And I have no problem letting the design side go. I love design, but that's not my passion, right? And so if you can find somebody or a team of people who can sort of fill in all the gaps, you can have a really successful firm. The danger is that many firms don't do that, that they just find people who are great designers or they, they click really well, but they don't actually look at their strength and strategically assemble a team that allows them to sort of take on the business side of architecture in a strong way. For these small businesses then, you know, when you're starting out, there's all these things that small firms feel like they have to do, you know, especially when they they might get overwhelmed with the idea of having to do like this development, marketing, yeah. organization, hiring. What have you seen has worked really well for those smaller firms in how they prioritize these different activities? Like what would you say is the most important thing someone should focus on at the very beginning versus, you know, especially on the operational side as, as opposed to, let's say, design? I always recommend that you start with a plan. So sort of put together a business plan and that could be really basic, right? You just sort of want to think about the vision of where you want to go, put together a mission on why you want to go there, put together some specific strategic goals on, on how do you actually achieve that, that vision and then break it down into strategic action plans and get them on your calendar on a weekly basis so you get those things done so you can actually achieve where you want to go. That's the first step, is sort of figuring out where you want to go. If you don't have a map, you'll never get there. You'll just keep driving around in circles. The second step, after you know where you want to go, is to understand financial management. Understand the basics. And again, it doesn't have to be super difficult. Like that business plan could be on one page, right? Same thing with your financial management plan. You can dive really deep, and we have programs where you can dive really deep, or you can just understand the basics, understand uh, how a profit-loss statement works right? How the money comes into your firm and how does it go out of that firm and how do you track that money? Assemble specific metrics so you understand how you're progressing, how you're growing. On a monthly basis, you can review those metrics and understand the health of your business in real time so you can make those changes before they affect the solvency of your business. Many architects aren't doing that and find themselves months, maybe years down the line, realizing that Something that happened months or years ago is now putting you out of business because you didn't see it, you didn't recognize it, and you didn't make the changes that needed to be made. And so if you understand the basics 
of financial management and track it on a monthly basis, you can see the trends. You can say, oh, I need more money, or I, I need more projects in order to pay the people I have, or I need to start letting people go because I don't expect more projects to be coming in. And you could start making those tr strategic decisions uh, very quickly and not wait for the circumstances to happen, the results of, of lack of action happen before you make those changes and end up in a lot of debt or end up with a lot of a large staff with, with no projects and no work to do. That's how you end up going out of business. And so understanding financial management is critical even before marketing, which we all love to do, right? Because we all love to be creative and we all love to talk about ourselves and, and uh, sort of get the word about, out about how we do it. Although much of what we do as architects is wrong in terms of marketing. Yeah, uh, we, we should we're, definitely dive into we're that. talking about yeah. ourselves rather than who we should be talking about. But that's the next step, right? Financial management, then once you understand the numbers, need, now you need to start getting some work. So you need to get the word out there about who you are and how you can solve the problems of your client. And then you need a sales system, which most architects don't have either. Mm. We're really good at marketing. We never actually ask for the sale. And so we sort of wait for the client to send in the check with the, with the proposal. There's no sales system in process, so you're not getting the work that you really need. Um, and so there's this sequence of pieces that you need to assemble. And you can do them on a very simple uh, process, especially mm. as a small firm. You don't need super elaborate, complicated systems. You just need a system. And then once you have all those pieces, then you start thinking about productivity processes and project management systems and those kind of things. But you need to start with your, your numbers and make sure you actually have a business. Yeah, that, that, that brings to mind um, this idea of, having, of, of being able to map out your business also almost like as a workflow chart. But, um, you know, some people use this idea of a funnel. Other people yep. use the customer journey or the idea of like what is, you know, as opposed to thinking about the firm itself, thinking about what the customer wants to accomplish right, right. when it comes to a given project and then sort of realigning the organization around that journey. And I, I think what's fascinating about all these tools is that they're actually in the wheelhouse of an architect. It's actually systematic. It's about diagramming and visualizing and representing yep. something that doesn't. Oh, it's almost like logistics, which I, I often think of architecture as being a very big like logistical game at the end of the day. Um, I agree. And so I'm, I'm curious then, what are the, the kind of lightweight things that you've seen that have worked well to start understanding and unpacking, like systematizing that whole, let's say, the series of steps that a firm might take to take a customer through to a delivered project? Yeah, going from financial management and understanding that system and then putting together a, a marketing strategy that brings in the clients by developing a brand that resonates with your ideal client, right? That's super important because, yeah, it's great to get a lot of potential clients coming, knocking on your door, but if 90% of them are not the clients that are going to be the clients you want, whether they are the type of work that you want or the type of client that you want or the profitability that you need, uh, then they're not the right client and you waste a lot of time. And we don't have a lot of time as small firm architects. You have very little time because we're doing everything. And so that has to be very strategic. And so to put together a system that does attract uh, the right clients and almost self-filters, uh, self-selects those clients by developing a brand that speaks directly to that client and resonates with that client by understanding who that ideal client is and uh, presenting solutions to the problems that those people have 
and then that sales system is, is so important that once you get that, and again, the sales system can literally just be a series of follow-up calls or follow-up mm-hmm. emails or some process to keep the, the ball rolling and getting them to either say yes or no as fast as they can, right? Because if it's no from the beginning and it takes six months to get to no, you've just wasted six months yeah. of your time. Mm-hmm. Where if you can get the no on that first day, then you can go right on to the next one who potentially could be a better client for you. And so uh, those are the kind of things that, that you need to focus on. Yeah. When, when you talk about brand, it's, it's interesting nowadays where having an opinion is such a big part of a, of a brand. It's like brands are now, I, know, I think of it when it comes to like social media and things like that, like these other, let's say newish distribution channels that have really augmented the need for a brand maybe even more so than before because, or, or whether, or maybe not so much of a need, but let's say 10 years ago, like Google being the kind of, you know, what you really jumped on, which was like writing, you know, good content for people that were searching for architects in Westchester, you know, that became one way where like, if you were just ranked number one, that was already half the battle, maybe 90% of the battle. Cause you're the first yeah. person people would just click on. And then, you know, if, if you had the right message for them and you met their problem, then it would be easier to close. Now, what's interesting is because like this culture of image, uh, like this image culture that with Instagram and all these other tools, um, what they've created is now actually the type of design that you produce could be its own level. You can build your own audiences now in a very different way than just relying on like what someone is searching for at that time. And I, I'm curious how this kind of dovetails into some of the other work that you've done with like, I mean, Entree Architect is a way, you essentially built an audience around a very key set of messages that yeah. people resonated and 50,000 of them resonated with. How do you see that playing out with architects in the future? Do you think that what you've done is actually almost playbookable in a way to other firms to create their, start to create their own audiences? Yeah. I think that's a critical piece of marketing for for architects is to create a community of people who resonate with what you do. By far, the the most successful thing we've done at Entree Architect is the community building, because that the community at large, the Facebook group, is one piece of that, and that that is a significant piece of it. But the identity of those people in the community identify themselves as entrepreneur architects, that they are there because they are like the rest of the people who are there. They, they, they see themselves in one another and they embrace that and they are there to help one another, which is a tremendous shift in our profession. I grew up in a profession that was very, very secretive. Firms did not ever share their secrets, which don't exist. There are no secrets, business yeah. is business. But they always, it was very, very private and very closed. And I blame the AIA, a big piece of that, with the rules that they've set because of antitrust, um, have scared generations of architects from talking about business and money and fees specifically. Tremendous damage to the profession by doing that. Uh, And I understand why they did it, and I understand the rules behind it, and I understand the whole piece of it. But that doesn't change the fact that it's damaged our profession. And there's a a tremendous amount of misunderstanding on what we can say and what we can't say and share with one another as architects. But the community has totally 180'd from the small firms within our community, which is why I think it's growing so fast, because naturally we want to share with one another. We want to help one another. 
And we've been discouraged from doing that from the profession. And that's shifting, right? Our generation is recognizing that we don't need to do that anymore. The next generation is coming at it intuitively transparent and open, right? They grew up on Snapchat and grew up on Instagram and Facebook and all the social media that sharing was their entire life and still is. And so they naturally want to share. They're seeing businesses grow on the internet. They're coming naturally with the inclinations to be entrepreneurs. And so we are in a tremendous transition in the profession, Uh, one that I am very, very happy to see. Uh, I fully embrace and encourage that we become much more open and sharing with one another and learn from one another and care about one another as professionals, that by me sharing what I know is only making you more successful. If I can make you more successful, then maybe you will help somebody else who they then become successful. And as we each individually become more successful, the profession then starts to rebuild and grow and regain a lot of the value and relevance that we have lost over the years by letting lots of our responsibilities and roles go away and be taken by other people and other professions and other industries. By helping one another, we're all growing. And, and truthfully, we're surviving because our profession will become obsolete if we don't start doing what we need to do as business people and start expanding the roles of what architects do and how we do them. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a lot there. I mean, my mind's reeling. Um, the transparency, right, is one topic that you addressed yeah. when it comes to like fees and and how that's hurt the industry. I mean, it's, there's one aspect of it where it's like external facing, where it's like, or, or this idea of like sharing between companies is one thing, but even internally within an organization, yep. sharing knowledge about how to run the business, which you addressed earlier, has also, it kind of adds a point of friction to running a business that's almost unnecessary because a lot of firms hire really talented people to do the work, right? And because it's like, and fees are critical to this, right? Because it's about billable hours and a lot of the industry is really tied to that, that relationship. Even if it's fee-based, hours are still important metric to be able to understand yeah. how your business is operating at a unit. Critical, yeah. Uh, yeah, a, in terms of its unit economics. But the idea that non, what happens then is it focuses so much on billable that non-billable becomes, maybe even the word itself makes it this kind of black box that nobody really wants to focus time on and they see it as a negative. When in reality, like if there was a shift where a lot of firms were able to give rope, give a lot of freedom to their, their staff, recognize that they're not, that as firm leaders, they're not the only people that have to focus on the entire equation of the business. They can actually empower some of their team members to tackle things that they might naturally gravitate toward. Maybe you hired a junior architect that's really has a savvy, uh, is really savvy on social media, like partner up with that with them to like figure out how to build the brand of the business and leveraging people's strengths is something that, I mean, I worked at several different firms at different scales and I recognize that to be uh, definitely a weak point where what you're talking about, this idea of transparency has negative effects downstream within the actual unit of a business. And I'm just curious, you know, have you seen, because you mentioned about it from the perspective of, you know, businesses sharing with one another, but what, what kind of changes have you seen on that level? Yeah, I think that that tradition almost of secrecy has come down through generations because of the way the profession has been developed and then some of the rules that have been put in place. But I also think that many firms don't share the business side of what they do because they are afraid 
and potentially embarrassed to show how uh, little they know about what they're doing. The more successful firms, many of them are sharing it, right? Because they want their employees to understand the value of their time, right? Here's why you need to have this certain number of billable hours, and here's what you should be doing on the time that you're not doing billable hours, and here's why, right? Open it up and show you why what you're doing affects this stuff over here. But a lot of firms are not run well. They don't, because they didn't learn, right? And it's not their fault, it's just the way the profession has been over the, yeah. over the generations. And many of these firms are, are generational, right? They've come from generations that have sort of not known. And so some of it is sort of traditional and cultural that it's secretive. Some of it, I believe, is, and I don't know that, that's a hunch I have, just from years of understanding the lack of knowledge that architects have about business, but just also understanding people. Nobody wants to, to show anybody that they don't know what they're doing, especially your employees, mm -hmm. right? Because you'll lose your employees if you open up the business side and, and reveal that you have no idea what you're doing. And so that is, should be some inspiration and motivation to figure out what you're doing so you can be more open and transparent about what, about what you're doing. Yeah, or on the flip side, that humility of being able to say, or humbleness from maybe better mm -hmm. word, of being able to be open with your team about what, what your limits are. Yeah. And then lean on them to maybe backfill some of that expertise or lean on them to, you know, when you're transparent at that level, I feel like that that's expresses a, a type of leadership that really can carry an entire team to do something great. Because it's when you, when you operate from a position of fear and doubt, it's when everybody sort of is operating in that, in that arena. And so I, I think that's, it's really interesting that at the end of the day, it comes down to peep the, like a very, it's much more personal, right? It's just more yeah. human as, as a result. Yeah. Well, that's what business is, right? Business essentially is people working with people, whether you're working with employees or working with clients and serving clients. The rest of it are just rules, right? And you're just trying to figure out, like I said in the beginning, it, you know, business is just a set of rules. And if you learn the game, if you learn the rules of the game and you you learn how to be good at it, right? When you first started kicking a soccer ball around, you weren't really mm -hmm. good at it. But the more you did it, you got better at it. And eventually you get really good at it. And mm -hmm. the same thing with business. If you understand the rules and you get good at them and learn what you need to learn and practice it, you'll get really good at it. And I think that if you open up your firm that way and, and uh, identify your weaknesses as well as your strengths, uh, and then, then strategically and intentionally plan for a way to resolve the issues that you have weaknesses with, right? Go out and get the resources or the people uh, or the training to solve those problems, to fill those gaps. Mm -hmm. If you just hide them and never really uh, analyze your firm and really look, go through strategically what you're good at and what you're not good at, you'll never identify them and you'll never mm -hmm. be able to fix them. And you'll struggle. You'll struggle your entire career, which is so many architects do that. That's the saddest part about uh, architecture is that there are so many architects that just struggle their entire career, which is why when a young architect says, hey, I want to be an architect, you get 10 architects saying, why do you want to be an architect? We make no money. Yeah. Just, they discourage them from you know, following in the profession. It's a great profession. It's one of the best professions. Totally. And it yeah. can be very, very financially successful if you know how to do it. It's just a business. Yeah. And I think for many people, they 
they see themselves potentially as a customer, especially when, you, when we talk about like firms and how they price their services sometimes. There's a sense where they kind of look, they might look at what they're charging potentially as something as, as if they're the buyer. And so right. there's a lot of times where you could just negotiate yourself out of a better position. Oh, all the time. Yeah. And I'm sure you've time. seen that several times with, with like when yeah. people come to you and they're telling you how they currently run their model, their, their business. Architects what? are negotiating all the time. They're either negotiating with a, with a client or they're negotiating with themselves, mm-hmm. right? Because they, they don't want to send that big fee to a client because they don't want to have the conflict about the service that they provided and the, and the cost of what that costs. There's a lot of power in knowing how much you have to charge, right? There's a formula for it. There's a process. We have a, there's a, right on the homepage of Entree Architect, there's a calculator you can download. And it's a billable rate calculator. And you plug in all the numbers and it'll tell you how much you have to charge in order to be profitable. There's a formula. And so if you understand how much you have to charge, then you know where you can start, right? And you can't charge less than that, right? You can't not be profitable. Profit is a requirement for business. It's not a dirty word. It's not, you're not, you know, uh, taking advantage of your client, if you're profitable, it's a requirement to do what you're doing. And in fact, it's, it's the reward for doing your job really well and serving your clients really well. Mm-hmm. Your clients want you to be profitable because that means you've served them very well. And so understanding how much you have to charge is the baseline. And then once you understand that, then you will be able to charge what you really need to charge. Yeah. And I think that kind of also ties into back what we were talking about when it comes to the fear of uh, maybe 10 years ago, there was less of a, of a propensity to, for a firm owner to want to share their tactics or strategies with another yep. firm owner because they felt that that was sort of their differentiation. But in reality, right. their services are very much the same. So differentiation has to come from elsewhere. And like fast forward to now, a lot of times differentiation comes from the brand that you're building, the audience that you're generating, that that wants to do work with you because of who you are, plus right. the design services that you, like the design that you provide, the solutions that you provide. And so um, it's really helpful for everyone then to really just understand what, what their baseline looks like for their market, for the region, so that everything else, you know, plus everything else that we talked about in terms of having people that might focus on your weaknesses so that you can focus on your strengths. And those strengths as a firm owner are really doubling down on your differentiation, like what's going to make you different from everyone else. And strategically, that's what you should be focusing on predominantly because that, that that's you. I mean, especially in the, small, uh, the smaller firm, no, no matter if, if your name is like, uh, it sounds more like a band name than, uh, than your actual uh, name, it, it still represents you in an intimate way. And even that decision reflected you as a person. And I, I, think, I think all this does tie together, especially even more so now than maybe before because now with with this the how easy it is to generate an audience yeah through so many different platforms which some people might not you know they might um at first glance be scared of them in some way they get a little say, overwhelmed by it all get overwhelmed but if you focus on the if, if you can focus on that channel that that you know where your audience is going to be that's the key that's like it's reinforcing right it's yeah. just like and we're seeing it in all sorts of other industries and all other types of, of, of fields. And so, so for the question, I'm curious if you've seen any, any firms that are doing that well or that have started to do that in any capacity. I'm, I'm just very curious. Yeah, it all starts with your ideal client, 
know and understanding who your ideal client is. And that's another thing that architects resist. They will all want to be generalists. They want to do everything. Mm-hmm. But you'll be, you'll be much more successful if you pick an ideal client and you can identify who you are and build a brand around that ideal client. Trying to be everything to everybody is useless. And no one's going to know who to refer, what to refer you for. Yeah, right? you and, have and, no and expertise. Yeah, no. You're an expert to no one. I would identify the ranch mine, Cabin Costello, the ranch mine, in um, the ranch mine, mm-hmm. if anybody's looking for it, theranchmine.com. Um, we actually have a webinar next week, free webinar inside the group at Entree Architect, the Facebook group, entrearchitect.com slash group, if you're not a member. Jeff Eccles does a context and clarity live Facebook call every day, every weekday, five days a yeah. week at 4 p.m. It's impressive. <laughs> yeah, he's really good at it, and it's very popular, and uh, it's super interesting because every, every day it's a different topic. And, um, and we're expanding the context and clarity brand inside the Facebook group, and we're doing clear view sessions, and they're going to be 60-minute webinars with interesting people hosted by Jeff. And next week is going to be Kevin Costello at the Ranch Mine. And they're going to talk about specifically that, how he has used Instagram to build his firm. Mm-hmm. And if you go to theranchmine.com, you will be impressed with what they're doing. He's doing really beautiful, modern architecture, residential architecture. And he built his firm using Instagram. And he's going to share how he did that in that, that uh, webinar on next week. And... Uh, He's been on the podcast three times, I think. So if you search Costello on entrearchitect.com, there's a search button right in the menu to search Costello or The Ranch Mine. We talked about a bunch of different things. One of those episodes is about his social media strategies specifically. Great. Thank you for that. So I'm going to transition now to a quick little lightning round. Um, okay. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. And then we can open it I'm up. I'm nervous, to, George. It's a barbecue and a. You didn't tell me. You didn't tell and, me what the yeah. rules were here. So the first one is, and these don't have you don't have to answer super quick, so we have a little bit of time. So with with five cat, your architecture practice, if you could have one do over on a project you worked on, what would it be? Oh, do over. There's so many mistakes you make as a business owner, especially when you start young. You know, we started Five Cat Studio when we were 29 years old you know, just completely naive about what it took to run a business, had no idea. We had no clients, no money. We just said, okay, we want to be architects. And we were licensed and we jumped in and we went. But we had a really big project. This is an interesting story. We, we, we launched the firm as Anne-Marie McCarthy Architect. She was licensed and I wasn't at first. I was doing some side work. I built a, a separate company that did existing conditions drawings for architects while we started building out Entree Architect. No, while we built out Five Cat Studio. And we designed a, our first project was a restaurant. And we had adopted a golden retriever and became friends with the people who we adopted the golden retriever for. They, they opened up a restaurant and they asked us to design it. And that was our first project. So we owe everything to a golden retriever. And so that was the first project. That project attracted a lot of new customers because it was a, we loved the design and the, the people who, who went to the restaurant liked it and they wanted to know who designed it. And so we got a lot of work through that and, and our friends liked to talk about us and brag about us. And so that helped. And the wife, because it was in Westchester County, New York, 40 minutes out of New York City, all the people who are working in New York City, all the executives and the elite all live either in Greenwich or Westchester. That's where they live. And so 
we actually were hired by the wife of one of the biggest developers in New York City. And I'm not going to mention his name because that's part of the story because he, he wasn't too nice to us. But he, she hired us to redesign her entire house. And literally at, at the Trump level of developers that mm. they own half of Manhattan, this company, this family. And you would know them if I said who it was. And she hired us. We worked with them for four months, worked with her for four months, never actually met him. And naively, never worked with a contract, worked with a handshake. And essentially, we were her plaything. We didn't realize it, but we were a hobby, right? Redesigning yeah. houses was, were her, was her hobby. And so we quit our jobs, and we thought we launched the firm with this client. Yeah. We're like, oh, we got this giant client. We're going to make all this money and launch the firm. As soon as I pushed for a contract, it was over. He called me and said, we're done. We're not going to do any more work, and you know, here's, we'll pay you for the work that you did, and we're done. So now we have nothing. We have no projects, no nothing. We quit because we thought this was the launch. The next week, because of our website, nobody else had websites, another great client came through, somebody, a young investor, investment banker who just worked for Goldman Sachs, became a partner at Goldman Sachs later in his, in his career, hired us to renovate his house hmm. in Chappaqua, where we lived. And that was the beginning of our firm. And if we had gotten this other project, we would have never gotten this other one because we, we would have turned it down because this other project was too big and it was just the two of us. And that was the beginning of everything. And in that project, there was three phases. And so the thing I would have done over was the third project. We had a great relationship with the owner and the contractor, construction manager actually, sort of took over the relationship with the owner and mm. sort of buried us a little bit and started stabbing us in the back and things like that and making us look really bad to a client that we really, you know, we went to his wedding, right? We had a really yeah. good relationship with him and the contractor destroyed our relationship by talking bad about us and blaming things on us and, and really turned the client on us. And the thing I would have changed is I went aggressively defending myself because I was right and I had all of the the backup and the, and the documentation to show that I was right. And by defending myself with that documentation, basically trying to do the same thing to the general contractor that he was doing to me, mm. that turned the client even worse. Because he didn't see it coming the other way. He only saw me coming back at him. And it made me look like I was being aggressive and trying to attack the general contractor. And so I've learned two lessons from that. One is defend yourself very, very carefully because very often you'll come off as the bad guy if you don't do it right. And manage expectations very, very carefully. Don't let those contractors take the roles that you should have. Be more involved, which is why after that project, we've never, ever not been involved in construction administration. We were involved in construction administration at that point, but we learned very quickly that that was a critical point that construction management, uh, construction administration phase is a critical point in the process of developing projects. Um, and if you're not there, you will be blamed for every mistake. That's one side of it. And the other side of it is that that is your greatest marketing opportunity to be there while that project that you were responsible for designing comes to life. And that client finally understands what you've been doing all this time in this design process that they didn't really understand. And now they understand it because they're walking through it 
And if you're not there, guess who gets all of the credit for all of that work that you've done? The general contractor will happily take all that credit. And so construction administration uh, has always been a critical piece of the services that we provide. And I've written on it. I've done podcasts on it. It is a requirement for architects to provide construction administration. Do not make it optional because the client will opt out every time. Uh, just make it part of your service and get paid for it. And just that's what we do. That is part of our service. It's not optional and it's not a bonus from a client's point of view. It is you are providing a service that a contractor can't provide. Right. And I mean, that is the quality assurance that you're providing to them ultimately. Yeah. And it's your liability too. <laughs> it's a huge liability to not be there. When a client comes to me and says, well, I don't really want that. First thing I say is you have to have it because that's part of the services we provide. If you want to work with us, we do that service and that's part of our fee. And we talk about our liability, that we are there because we have to be there to make sure that the project is built properly because we are professionals. Our stamper is on those drawings. We have to make sure that it's being built to the way that, uh, that meets the requirements of our drawings. Uh, really, really fantastic insight, Mark. I really, really appreciate that. Uh, what, what, are your, what are your favorite tools to use right now? My favorite tools? I would probably say, well, my favorite, my favorite tool or my most productive tool? My favorite most tool, most productive tool, I would say is probably Slack. Slack. Uh, I have Slack channels for everything I do, including my family. And uh, you know, Slack teams, my family's on a Slack team. All my businesses are on Slack team. Gable Media is now on a Slack team. It's everything. My favorite is probably um, Overcast, my podcast app. I'm a big podcast fan. On brand, as, as you should be. What is the one advice you'd give someone that's just joining the industry? Learn the fundamentals of business. Boom. Got it. Can you tell us what's the nicest thing anyone has done for you? I thrive on affirmation. Hmm. It is my fuel. And so when someone emails me out of the blue and says, thank you, this podcast changed the way I do what I do and now I'm more successful. Those kind of emails are so powerful for me. They literally keep me going because Andre Architect is not making me a lot of money. <laughs> I'm not a rich man. It is a struggle every day. I live on the edge because I, you know, I, I, I practice very little now. Entree Architect is growing. Gable Media is now growing. I have two, three businesses now, three corporations. And it is a lot of work and it is expensive. And I get my bills paid, but that's about it. And the thing that keeps me going is knowing that I'm making a difference, that in the end, the world will be better for me being here. And when I get acknowledgement and affirmation that I am doing something in a positive way, it just gives me the fuel I need to start the next day and keep growing it and making it better. And that's, that's everything. That's pretty nice. <laughs> I, I, uh, that, that's, that's really great. Uh, so uh, why do you think firms are hesitant to teach entry staff about business? I think we covered this a little bit, but if you want to be more specific. Yeah, we did talk about it a little bit. I think there's a bunch of reasons. One is I think that some firms think that it's not their job to do that. I think there's fear in some of us that we might not know enough to open those books and be confident that, you know, that, um, that we um, know what we're doing. And I think that there's also the possibility that um, it sets up a dynamic in your firm. You have to have a culture that accepts that, that is set up that way, that, that it is a culture of transparency and a culture of um, 
responsibility, that everybody is there for everybody else, that we're all there to share and, and grow together, and we're there to make the business better, and that we're not one for all, right? We're all for one. We're all for the, the firm. And uh, if you don't have that culture, and the culture is sort of set up that, you know, Jack's getting paid a lot more than Mary. Maybe I don't want to open my books to show Mary how much she's not making. That's a cultural thing. That's something that needs to change in your firm so those things can be discussed. And, that, that, uh, and, and not, salaries aren't always have to, you know, I'm not saying salaries should be transparent, uh, but I'm just sort of using that as an example. Yeah. But, but some firms do have open, transparent policies about, about salaries. Yeah, I think it comes, for me, it also comes back to ownership. It's like if you can give people a sense of ownership within the yeah, business. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it can be just being very transparent with the books and how, how, how a project is supposed to be profitable and whatnot. It helps them keep, probably manage that project more effectively, deliver better results, feel like they, they can contribute ideas that help to expedite certain things or be, be much more innovative. The culture of your firm needs to be intentional. It needs to be designed like any other piece of your business. You need to decide what the culture of your firm is going to be establish that in terms of as a leader, uh, by example, but then also hire people who, who are already built for that culture. Because that culture is the piece that allows it to thrive. It's, that's where that ownership will come because it's a culture of ownership. It's a culture that's being hired to work that way. Yeah, your, your business in many ways will only be as good as the people you hire, ultimately. Yeah. What questions can you ask during an interview to help you understand the transparency in the culture of the firm? You can probably, hmm, that's an interesting question. I, I think it comes down to like, I mean, if, if a company has stated values, like at, at Monograph, we, we walk yeah. people through the, the values of the company, what we care about, ownership is, a, is one of the themes that we, we care about. And, you know, if they're not, if, if they've not articulated a sense of values, then that's probably a red flag already because they don't yeah, have a really yeah. good grasp on what their culture is. And so it's very easy that, that culture can emerge yep. maybe too organically from, you know, the in, inner office politics that might happen depending on the scale of the business. But I, I would probably start there. Yeah, you, and, could, you could ask what your firm's core values are. Yes. Yeah. I think that would be a good place to start. And if they have, if, if it's stated, then I think that's good. Or maybe the other way to do it is actually not by, you know, I think an interview shouldn't start when you meet with someone, you know, for the first time in their office to like get through an interview. An interview probably should best start when you're interviewing the actual other employees in that company to understand what's it like there. Can you, you know, you know, in, well, nowadays yeah. it's hard to invite someone for coffee, but you could probably do virtual coffee chat, maybe have them order an espresso for them or something. But yeah, you know, just try to understand through other people that are actually on the ground what they're experiencing. Yeah. That could probably give you a better indicator. Um, and that's I think, so easy to do with social yeah. media, right? Oh, you can, yeah. you can, if, the, if you've identified the firm, all you, you go to LinkedIn, search for the firm, go to Instagram and search for the firm. You'll, you'll probably find employees of that firm and then just reach out to them and be honest. Yeah, I'm looking to potentially take a position. I'd love to just jump on a call and talk for a little bit. And oftentimes that's also good if, if you like what you're hearing and you feel like that's the place where you belong, then that can also be an entry point for you to be part of the company, right? As opposed to, you know, as many firms get, a, you know, stacks and stacks of applications, yeah. you have to be creative too about how you kind of- Yeah, that's actually out. one of the things that when somebody asks me, how do I find a job? 
that's where I start. Start in social media. Start communicating with people. Build that community for yourself. You don't have to have a firm to build a community. Build that network out on your social media, which is so easy to do. And then when you're ready to start looking for a job, that's the first place you go. Go to that network and say, here's who I am. Here are my strengths. This is the type of firm I'm looking for. Anybody have an idea? And then you get an introduction to a firm. And you're 10 steps ahead of the person that sent the resume that said, you know, the bottom resumes are useless today. So we are at time. Thank you, everyone, for for joining. Uh, Thank you, Mark, so much for being part of uh, the Best uh, Practice uh, show and for being our inaugural guest. As a follow-up, this this is recorded, so it's going to be on YouTube. So you can subscribe to the Monograph channel so you'll be able to see more of these coming. We have uh, Byron uh, McCartney uh, next week. Um, who's gonna, we're going to be di- diving deep into LinkedIn. I'm very excited because he has a case study, multi-million dollar case study that he wants me. He's very to, good. Yeah. yeah, he wants to walk us through. So, um, yeah, thank you so much again, Mark, for your time. really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks for the invitation, George. It's always a pleasure talking to you, and, uh, and I love the work you guys are doing at Monograph. So thanks. Thank you so much for joining us here at Monograph. We're building the future of practice operations and back office management for small to medium-sized firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. It's a great way to actually see a unifying vision of your firm in one easy and beautifully designed solution. It helps you understand where you are on any given project, what your schedules, budgets look like. You can start a free trial today at monograph.io or watch a live demo with Robert, our CEO. Every Friday, he walks through the product and answers any questions that you have. Can I give Monograph a quick plug? Uh, sure. So so in all the softwares, especially if you're worried about adoption and you know the transformation to kind of digital practice, never underestimate the effect of a good UX. Good user experience will carry your users into the platform and the software with embedded practices in ways that you can't imagine. Monograph with their UX is by far, I think, much more adapted to the type of project management in the industry than kind of -of out-of-the-box software elsewhere. I really appreciate that. Yeah, we invest a lot of time and energy just trying to make sure that people have a really good onboarding experience. And we've released some new embedded support options that are well-received right now. So thanks for that. Really appreciate it. The customer cares of where it's at. Yeah. Josh agrees here in in the channel. That's awesome, Josh. Thanks. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.